Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. And now your host, John Clore. Welcome everyone to another edition of the Mustang Owners Podcast. This is John Clore. I'm the Enthusiast Communications Manager for Ford Performance with my co-host, none other than Mike Ray, the president of the, the Mustang Owners Club of Southeastern Michigan. And ladies and gentlemen, now that you are on the, an episode of the Ford Performance part of this podcast, we have to have some performance in our podcast. And Mike, I think we have a guest that has performance written all over him. Uh, you couldn't have uh, nailed a little bit better than that. Uh, our guest tonight is going to be very, very special. I think the audience is going to really um, feed on his stories. And uh, if you know this guy, you know he's such a great guy in the world and uh, a true enthusiast, a true car guy. And uh, I've never met anybody who doesn't love him. And uh, and that's Gary Patterson. And uh, we're going to start it off with uh, one of his favorite quotes let's have some damn fun tonight. <laughs> Gary, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Gary. This is great to have the president of Shelby American spend some time with us here on the Mustang Owners Podcast. So I appreciate your time tonight, Gary. Well, thanks. You know, it's a real honor for me as well. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a fun episode. So let's have some damn fun. <laughs> well, the, the best part about having uh, the podcast is when we have a guest. Um, people may know you. They probably met you at an event. You're everywhere. Um, you're you're all over the country, all over the world. Your face is everywhere. You know you could you could run for political office if you were not real bright, but you're too smart for that. So <laughs> what you're doing now is uh, creating all this excitement. But Gary, nobody just drops into that. And the the people that don't know you or haven't been lucky enough to be at a banquet when you were a speaker, um, they they're curious as how does uh, a car guy, uh, someone who likes cars as a kid grow up and get into the hobby and how did you get started with this crazy love for performance cars well you know john i think it's uh it's pretty simple it's not a whole lot different than probably many of you and you know i was introduced to high performance cars at a young age you know my father uh, is a car enthusiast uh, still is to this day we'd get together for family get-togethers down on the farm and uh you know, my uncle would show up with a 427 Corvette and dad had a 289 Hypo Mustang convertible. And, you know, my other uncle would have a GTO, big engines and tri-powers and all kinds of stuff. And uh, somebody else would show up with a 57 Chevy. Um, you know, I had other people in the in the Patterson family that would show up with uh, various things. And it was all it was always American muscle back then. So I think that's probably kind of how it started. So I can still blame my parents, uh, specifically my father for, for some of that addiction. <laughs> Jeez, uh, what a, what's wrong with my family, Mike? When my, my uncles would come over, they'd bring a deck of cards and they'd play Pinochle. <laughs> they didn't bring any 427s, anything. So, uh, so, so you, were, you were exposed to this at an early age. Um, but how do you convince your father, well, being that he was a car guy, that even a youngster uh, should have a big, strong, powerful car, because most dads want to keep their 16, 17, 18-year-olds out of high-performance machines. Well, you know, that's very true. And I was very fortunate to have a, you know, understanding father, but also cautious. So through that that love of cars, one of the other things I did was, you know, like many of you, and including my wife, Sarah, 
you know, she worked with her father on 68 Shelby GT500 when she was young. I worked with my father on his Hypo Mustang convertible, you know, when I was young. And I think that each of us, if we really look at it, how you got started, maybe it wasn't your father, maybe it was an uncle, maybe it was a neighbor, something like that. But each of you also have car stories as to, you know, what got you involved in the hobby and so forth. So that happens to be my story. And my father, I think deep down inside, he wanted some of the same stuff I did. And I was an excuse for him to get the car he really wanted. So <laughs> by by saying it was for me, what I did was, you know, I worked with my father on the, on the cars. I worked with uncles and my grandfather and so forth on farm equipment and learned to drive tractors and things like that. So that was just kind of fun. It was mechanical and it was, it was all part of it. And I rode dirt bikes and motorcycles and different things, you know, as a youngster. And so I think that, uh, you know, a lot of that continued on. But the other thing I did and my father was big on was, you know, you can run them hard but you need to take good care of them. And so he taught me the importance of, you know, auto maintenance and uh, not only oil changes and spark plugs and those kind of things, but also caring for the paint and all that kind of stuff because his cars always look nice. Through that, you know, and in responsibility, if you're going to have this, you got to be responsible. My dirt bike, my vehicle types of things, my bicycle, they always look great um, (laughs) because I took good care of them. So when I, I worked my butt off, I uh, mowed a lot of lawns and saved my money because that's the only way I was going to get a car. You know, when I was young, the, the 69 Mach 1 came out and it had the one I wanted was red with the, the black hood and the shaker hood scoop like a lot of the ads had. Ford did a great job promoting that vehicle uh, with those. And so that's the car I wanted. Uh, it was attainable for somebody that was young and so forth. The 427 Cobra was on the wall too, but that wasn't very realistic for me. But um, so I had my sights on that. And at 16, um, I'd saved, you know, a fair amount of money back then. And I um, started looking around for cars and primarily for Mustangs. And, but, you know, I was, I was a muscle car person. I mean, the family had not only Fords, but some other things, but Ford was really kind of where, where I was at in the, the, the one that was going to ring all the bells was that 69 Cobra Jet Mach 1. So my father uh, found one that somebody that he worked with had, and it was exactly what I wanted. 428, shaker hood, four speed, red, black, the whole bit. Timing was right, and the guy wanted to sell it, and he had a 69 Camaro Z28 as well uh, with the cowl induction hood and the whole thing. But, uh, you know, dad brought me over there, and I went to his his house and we we drove his my dad's 70 corvette at the time and we get out and the 69 was out front uh, in the driveway and behind it was the 69 cobra jet and i have to tell you guys i'm a car guy i walked by the 69 z28 like it didn't exist and i went straight for the 69 cobra jet mach one that i dreamed about and i was standing there like <laughs> like I was just enamored with the car. So there was some side negotiation between my dad and this gentleman. We took the car out. I can still remember going. Dad was driving, brought it up to about 30 miles an hour in first gear and stood on the throttle and the tires broke loose and grabbed second gear and so forth. And he looks at me and he goes, yep, Cobra Jet. (laughs) 
And I was, of course, it was, you know, just all over it. And uh, he had to go home and convince my mother Hmm. that this would be a good thing for Junior to have. (laughs) And so my dad was pretty convincing because he said, look, mom was fine. She loved the car. She thought it was it was neat and it was shiny and it was red, just like dad's hypo convertible was. But she knew that whatever was under that hood scoop was probably not healthy for junior. And I didn't have quite enough money for the car, but he convinced her that look around, look at how I cared for my bicycle, my dirt bike, the responsibility that I had for those things. And, you know, he said, look, he's going to take good care of this car and in turn, it will take care of, you know, him. So he convinced her that was a good idea. And I could uh, borrow a little bit of money, clean out my savings account. And I couldn't drive it until I had him paid back and had insurance on the car. And that all happened within about a four-month period of time. <laughs> sure and, <did. laughs> and then I was driving the car. And I drove it exactly as you probably would have imagined. Foot flat to the floor. There was a lot of tire smoke and you know, shenanigans that went on. But on the other hand, that car was spotless. And to this day, it still has the original paint on most of them. <laughs> well, Mike and I can vouch for a lot of guys that you say everybody's got their Mustang story uh, who can take care of their car and do a really nice job. And, and I, we do know a lot of guys that because of that, uh, maybe it was with a parent or a, an uncle got to wrench a lot. But what separates you from the crowd, Gary, is that beyond taking care of your car and being able to mechanically know what you're doing, you can drive. And I know a lot of guys that really took great care of their car, but once they got their hot Mustang, they balled it up and and they didn't drive so much well after that. You, how did you get into that part of uh, the performance world? Did you take lessons? You go go go-karting. How did you hone those driving skills at such an early age? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You know, and, and it's one of those things. It's uh, in some cases you either kind of have it or you don't. You know, you could you could spend an entire lifetime giving me piano lessons, and I'd still not be able to play the piano. My brother-in-law can listen to a radio and sit down at the piano and play the song. I mean, I have a hard time playing the radio, so it's just one of those things. Driving was something that just kind of came fairly naturally to me and quite frankly I did I just I took mom's station wagon out because that's all that was before I had the the Cobra jet and dad wasn't big on loaning the keys to the Corvette or the Mustang I'd take that car and I'd take it out to the horse track at the fairgrounds obviously after hours <laughs> and uh, sneak through and I'd run the I'd run the dirt track at the horse you know fairgrounds and I would just kind of self-taught run with my friends and we ran in the snow we ran in the dirt we ran anything you could and from that you know i did fairly well with it and i drag raced the 69 cobra jet you know when i was still in high school and eventually bought a a corvette convertible and in 
the time period that I bought it, I also had a 69 Fastback that happens to belong now to one of our Moxham members um, that I sold him as a wrecked car. And this guy put God knows how much money in it, but well into six figures. But anyway, he resurrected it. And that was really cool. But the, the point is, I drove them. I worked on them. I did all of those things. And I learned from people. And it was not just me. It was about the people that I was involved with. And they would teach me things. I didn't take school. I didn't go to driver's school or any of that. But it was something that I just, I did have a fairly decent ability at just by doing. I autocrossed the Corvette. I did all kinds of shenanigans with it. But in that particular case, um, you know, I go down to Powell Speedway in Columbus, and I don't even think that thing exists anymore. But, you know, I'd run the oval with the Corvette guys, and I didn't have the tires and the equipment, but I could run with those guys anyway. And they're just kind of like getting a kick out of it. So a lot of it was just the school of hard knocks. If you look up, uh, you know, expert in the dictionary, it doesn't talk about the degree hanging on the wall. It talks about, you know, yeah, the real, real life. Yeah, like real that. world. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, we're, we're so happy to hear that uh, Gary Patterson, president of Shelby American, has uh, has that same kind of car guy background, except that he was able to put all three together. And some of the questions I get when people talk about you, Gary, is that in early employment, did you have, because you were so, so into cars, did you have some kind of a desire to say, well, eventually I'm going to work at Shelby? Or how do you do work on cars in, in your early employment? How did you wind up getting involved with the Shelby world? You know, when, when I was young and so forth, those things weren't even a possibility because, you know, in 1960, as you know, many of you guys know, Carol was a dying man. They'd basically given him five years to live. And the fact that uh, he, you know, took that instead of spending his last five years on the couch watching the tube, he went out and started getting things done and got busy living, not dying. And he never gave up. And his thing was always about whatever was next. And, you know, that's, that's really inspiring. You know, how would your life be different if when you're age 30 something, you know, early 30s, the doctor says, well, you probably got five years left. You know, how would that change what you did? Whether it changed Carol significantly, I don't know. All I can tell you is he lived his whole life chips all in because he didn't think he had much time. When I looked at um, the possibility of working for Shelby American, it didn't exist when I was in high school because Shelby was virtually closed. I mean, they had the, the tire business and a few things like that, but they weren't, weren't building any cars. So, you know, that wasn't even a possibility, but I enjoyed cars. and. I joined clubs. I was part of the Toledo Shelby Club. I didn't have a Shelby, but they welcomed me anyway uh, with my lowly Cobra Jet Mach 1, <laughs> which would kick butt with them too. So that was fun. But, you know, the, the bottom line is not a lot different than many of you where you just went out and did it. You got involved. And, you know, you volunteered. And, you know, how many of these uh, club things do you do that you just do whatever it takes to get the job done? And it's not about money. When I got out of college, there really wasn't uh, that much in the way of automotive jobs. And I really, um, at the time, didn't, didn't care to, to move to Detroit and, and work for the big companies. But, um, you know, and my father had convinced me that I'd probably get sick of it if I uh, worked, did that for a living. I didn't happen to agree, but I did that. So I got out of college and I did the distribution thing for a while. And that was good. And it treated me well. And and I was, I was decent at it, but it really wasn't my passion. In doing 
those things as well, that was great. But as a hobby, I still had the Cobra Jet Mach 1. I still had the Corvette. I would do autocrosses. I did open road race events. I did, and, and I just did whatever it took to get the job done and get involved with people and learning who to be involved with and the right people at the right place at the right time. And I was, in some cases, I was lucky because Shelby did get his thing going again. Um, the continuation Cobra thing started um, because Carol was upset that all these uh, kit car guys were out there basically doing what he had done. He said, well, you know, if need be, I'll just compete with them. And so he started the Cobra business again. Well, going to Las Vegas was a good move because they were just starting to plan in the future for the Las Vegas Motor Speedway, which the big track that you see on TV and NASCAR didn't exist at the time, uh, but there was a plan to do it. The industrial park that was right there didn't exist, but there was a plan to do it. And the state uh, tax structure and so forth was such that it was very advantageous from a business standpoint to have your facility there. And Carol always dreamed of having a his manufacturing facility at the racetrack. So, you know, he started that and, and he brought in a guy named Don Rager and Don was also an organ recipient, just like Carol. Um, but Don had liver instead of a heart and a kidney and all those kind of things. But the bottom line is um, he brought the business and through that, I was president of the local Las Vegas Mustang Club. So we invited him to speak. And so he did that. And so, you know, we get made that connection a couple of weeks later, you know, I was on the, on the board of uh, the silver state classic challenge event director and those things. And Don came up and he brought a 427 Cobra and he didn't compete, but he had it on display. And so we kind of became fast friends and I helped him with legends car um, tech inspections at the track and stuff like that, largely as a volunteer, uh, much like many of you, but through those connections, through those relationships, that friendship developed into uh, when my professional career was getting ready to take a turn, I went in to say goodbye and he said, uh, you can't leave. And I went, well, I got two boys to think about, single parent. You know, this is what I think I got to do. And he said, well, here's a drawing, a crude drawing of a Shelby Series 1 that might be something that you'd be interested in. And we're doing these Cobras. Think about it. It might be something that lasts for three months. It be, could be something in six months or be something really cool in five years. I went from supervising a couple hundred people at a distribution center that I was pretty well known for at that time to looking at a box and saying, are you going to ship this thing or not? Working for Carol Shelby. I knew that I could get back into the distribution business easy. I was never, ever going to get another chance to work for Shelby American. And I took that chance. And uh, it was my passion. It was my love. It was probably a foolish move at the time from a career standpoint, but I did it anyway. You know, when you really love something and you work at it hard enough, long enough, you know, even a small company, and Shelby was extremely small then, and the three months turned into six, that turned into a year, that turned into gee, this car may be viable after all To And we went through some serious ups and downs and, you know, so forth. But through it, you developed relationships, you learned, um, and you became the go-to person in the company. And you worked at different jobs and you took did whatever it took. And, you know, my love of the track and stuff so evolved. It was, and, and Carol, 
as you guys know, you know, you look at some of the people that drove for Carol Shelby, many of them were really no name people until, you know, they got really involved with Carol guys that raced a little bit, but they weren't big names until they started racing the Cobras and went in the big races and so forth. Uh, then they became big names, but Carol would give people a chance and we weren't a very big company. So when they came out, you know, magazine or something to test a continuation Cobra, you know, they look, they bring a, a pro driver out to do that. Well, inevitably the, the magazine people show up and the car's there and we're ready to go. And I help prep and do those things, but the driver didn't show up. And uh, so we were kind of in a pickle and I said, look, I can drive that car. And they're all looking at me like, yeah, <laughs> right. And I said, well, why don't you give me a chance? You know, cause I raced this Corvette and I had a supercharged 91 Mustang um, at the time. And then I also had the, the old Cobra jet. And I said, you know, I can, I can wheel those pretty good. And I've got a little bit of seat time in a 427 Cobra. So long story short, I took a few laps. Uh, they started looking at me and going, you know, <laughs> maybe the guy can drive. In fact, you're faster than the last couple of pros we brought out. So go ahead and drive. And then, so I just kept doing it. And, <laughs> and then they bring me in, you know, I had to open road race stuff I was doing and, you know, we had to give classes and stuff. People had to go to an accredited class. And the next thing I knew I was teaching the class. I'd never had a class. <laughs> so it was one of those things, you know, mm -hmm. you, you go down the road long enough and experts, not the guy with the degree on the wall. It's the guy that can get it done. So I think that's kind of how that evolved. And I, you know, went uh, through the material side because of my distribution background. I got through the sales side. I got through all those kind of things. And uh, I'm very honored and, and blessed now to be able to lead the team at Shelby American. Well, uh, you can tell Gary from, that whole background. A lot of people don't know that about you. And that's why we're so glad that you joined us on the podcast because uh, people that we meet in the hobby, um, maybe their, their careers are totally different. They're in something totally different, but their love and passion is definitely in this Mustang hobby. And then somehow the world's merged like they did for you. And you were able to make your, your hobby and your passion, actually your employment. I know one guy that's on the podcast who, um, just so happened to have gone to a Mustang meeting and then winds up somehow being the president. And after years of being involved in the hobby, now is really tied to everybody in the hobby. And that's how he got to know you. And Mike, that's kind of your story, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It is. And, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate to, I think me and Gary met, it was either 2009 or 2010. And, uh, it was at one of the MCA regional directors summits. And, um, it was just great. I mean, he, Gary is a person who treats you like family from day one. And I've always respected him for that and honored to, to call him a friend. And like I said, we've had a long relationship um, through the Roush days when I was at Roush and he was at Shelby and every event, we always made sure to go say hello to each other and spend some time with each other. And if anybody knows us on the Roush team, they knew Al and he was cooking us lunch all the time. So it was just a great, great um, experience to um, meet somebody like that and and become great friends. And like you said, definitely now family um, for sure. But, you know, one thing that I, I would love to ask Gary is um, and that the viewers, I'm sure, want to hear. And I know, Gary, you can probably pick from a million different ones. But what is your absolute favorite story about Carol that you uh you experienced firsthand. 
Yeah, that's a boy. Um, like the one that stands out the most. I'm mean, like I said, I'm sure you got a million different ones. Yeah, I, I don't know that any one particular thing is, you know, necessarily stands out the most. You know, but I, I'll tell you, I, I could give you many stories, but one of the things that you run into in any company is, and Shelby was a small company, but it was like there was always somebody that wanted to get to the great Carol Shelby and be the the stoolie and tell them the behind the scenes what was going on with the company and tell Carol what was really going on. And Carol liked that anyway, because he loved to stir the pot when things got too smooth. So um, one day I was uh, bringing the uh, 427 Cobra out to the, the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. We hadn't moved to the Speedway at that particular time yet. And it was a, a brushed aluminum car with a aluminum Shelby 427. And, you know, we didn't have much in the way of assets with trucks and trailers and stuff. So we just had to get in the car and drive it. And that's not such a bad gig, you know. The company car that day was to take the 427 and, and uh, take it out to the Speedway. So I did that. And quite frankly, I, for the most part, I knew, especially with those cars being high profile and quite expensive, way out of my budget, you know, that there was a time and a place to run them hard. And so, you know, and I would do that. I would run them very hard. But generally on the street, I didn't. So on this particular day, I was uh, coming back from the speedway. Oh, but before that, so I deliver the car to the speedway. I get there, there's a security guard, and he chats me up for a minute. I tell him, like, I'm over there. I got to put the car on display. The display is probably 400 yards away. So when we're done with that, I bump the RPMs up to 2,500, dump the clutch, stand on the gas, leave two black stripes for quite a ways until grab second gear, and there's two more black stripes. I pull into the spot, I park it, the security guy comes over all excited. He says, does your boss have any idea you drive the car like that? And I said, my boss expects me to drive this car like that. <laughs> Just totally took the wind off his sails. But so anyway, so I get back to the shop and the stoolie in the shop um, who has Carol's ear at the time, he tells Carol that when I was driving the car back, um, which he had no knowledge of, that I was driving recklessly through town at 100 miles an hour and gave him this big old spiel. So as luck would have it, the company uh, CFO at the time had followed me back from the track and knew the truth. And so I'm sure that Carol kind of found out a little bit about that before he confronted me. But Carol was one of those guys that if you treated him like the great Carol Shelby, you know, once you worked for him, he'd uh, run over you like a freight train and enjoy it. I was not that guy. So he, he would respect you if you uh, would stand up to him and tell him the way it was and go toe to toe. So he got in my uncomfortable space about, you know, maybe 10, 12 inches from my face. And he says, Garrett, and you got to remember, I'd only worked for the company at this point, maybe six months. He says, it's my understanding, and he says, that you were driving the, my 427 Cobra recklessly through traffic, and you were going 100 miles an hour. What's the deal with that? 
And I looked at him and I said, Carol, I was going well over a hundred miles an hour. <laughs> that wasn't true. He knew the truth. I knew he knew the truth. He just laughed and turned and walked away. <laughs> but, but he wanted to, you know, he would push you, he would test you. But on, on the other hand, he was a regular guy with regular stuff. You know, we would, uh, we got in an airplane one time uh, after Barrett Jackson, we got Patrick Dempsey with us and, you know, one of his friends and we all cram into a, uh, I think it was a, it's the only rental car they had was a, a GM Yukon. And I think we had like eight people in this thing, plus our luggage. And everybody's crammed in there like a sardine. We only had like three miles to go to get to the airplane. And Carol says to the driver, hey, I'm kind of hungry. How about we go through the Burger King drive through <laughs> You know, we're crammed in this car. We, nobody can even breathe. And he wants to go through. the. That's exactly what we did. We went to drive through We got our little bags. And we got to the plane. We got on the plane. Everything was good. But that's, you know, Carol just on a whim just. I could keep going with story after story. No, he, there's a couple for you. Yeah, he, uh, Gary, he's yeah, he's a legend, and uh, the ability for for people to, who lucky enough to have met him and know him, uh, like you have been, uh, what a what a treasure! And uh, you know, I can imagine the honor it is for you to represent the Shelby brand and all the great cars that we've had out there, and especially these last few years. It's just been getting crazier and crazier. The glory days of muscle cars are today, but as you know. We are now at a at a threshold at a, at a crossroads when it comes to um, internal combustion engines versus this new global transition towards EVs, and it's um, uh, the, the, on a lot of people's minds. The Shelby still continued. That do they believe that the future is there? There's still a future for performance cars when people are uh, thinking about other things for the planet and fuel economy. Is it can they both coexist? Yeah, John, I think that's a great point because. That's that's a, clearly a question on every enthusiast's mind. And if you truly love cars, and a lot of people are pretty opinionated over that, myself included, where is this going and what would Carol think? Well, you know, we were very blessed. I worked with Carol the last 16 years of his life. Got several key team members. When you talk to Carol and you said, what's your favorite? You know, we've quoted numerous times. It was always the next one. In the 60s, he was quoted as saying, you know, hi, I'm Carol Shelby and performance is my business. He never said internal combustion engines. He never said cars. He never said trucks. He said performance. He was always an innovator. If you got to know Carol very well, it didn't matter whether it was a, a high performance car or some kind of a different strain of beef cattle or chili mix or whatever shenanigans he had down in Chilingua, he was just never done. And his mind was always working and trying and working on the next thing. 2011, in one of his last interviews, <clears throat> we've got him on tape saying how excited he was about, you know, the future of performance and new powertrains. Many of you guys may not be aware. We, we actually, uh, when Carol in the sixties was all about that stuff, he actually, um, had a turbine-powered IndyCar. And there was only like two or three years where they ran turbines before they outlawed them. Parnelli Jones came within a lap or two of winning the overall race. And some little $2 part failed and he didn't win. But the point is, Carroll was involved in all that. And he had two IndyCars. You know, he didn't he didn't manage to get through tech inspection. Wonder why. But anyway, and I've got some of the paperwork that goes with that, that uh, Aaron Shelby 
uh, Carol's grandson was nice enough to share with me. But Carol was about that kind of thing. We had a, a hydrogen-powered Cobra that I drove. Um, he worked with Jim Heffel at the University of California. Didn't seem to work very well, but that was then. That doesn't mean hydrogen won't be something in the future. Carol also talked in that interview about uh, the possibility of electric powertrains. Ford's all about electric stuff right now. You know, we're looking at that. We've got a great car that we debuted at SEMA in the Ford booth this last uh, year, and it's, and it's gotten some, some really great uh, reviews, you know, from people that have, you know, any kind of an open mind. And we know that we've got a lot to learn and a lot of things on, on new powertrains. You know, and when I was at uh, Detroit in 2013, you know, and the EV guys would come down and they'd say, well, you know, where's your green car? Well, we'd, we'd have a GT350 that was green. They didn't see the humor in that. <laughs> color. That's, and that's well, Gary Patterson. We know that's. <laughs> yeah, well, so you got to have a little sense of humor in this thing. Sure. They say, well, well, you know, where's your hybrid? We got, if you looked around in our booth, we had a 350. We had a 500 Super Snake wide body with 850 horses that just breathe the news power. And we had a big Raptor truck that we put a blower on and just all that kind of stuff. And I'd look at them and I'd say, well, they're all hybrids. They burn gas and rubber. <laughs> and those were the customers we have. But you know what? They're still our customers. But sure. we've also added a whole new group of customers that do have, you know, an open mind. You know, when I when I bought my 69 Cobra Jet, one of the things I remember clearly was it was kind of a one-trick pony. I think it looked badass. Um, it would run really good in the time in a straight line. It didn't stop. It didn't turn. And I didn't care. <laughs> right? And no, so didn't. I drag raced that car because that's what it was good at. If you look at a current EV, what are the things that that car does well? Well, you know what? Zero to 60 in three and a half seconds isn't anything to sneeze at. Um, so there's, you take that and you, you try to build on that kind of potential. And as we learn more, you know, we're going to get some of those other things, you know, brakes and handling. And, you know, I think sure. uh, Ford's done a fabulous job with the, the new Mach-E in those departments compared to many of its competitors where this thing actually looks decent. It stops decent. It turns decent when you get the, uh, the performance edition. So where do we go from there? What does it do? Well, what doesn't it? And, and you try it and you, you figure out the strengths and weaknesses and you build on the strengths and try to correct the weaknesses. Well, absolutely. If there's anything that Shelby's known for, it's to sprinkle a little bit of that Shelby magic, on any of those vehicles to make the performance question. And when it comes to EVs, I, I've seen your, what you've done with that uh, Mach-E was just, it, it was so Shelby and it was, it was just perfect. And Gary, if, if you're going to still be around doing that, I know that the enthusiasts out there can be rest assured that you're going to continue this wonderful Shelby legacy, no matter what kind of powertrain it is, because the bottom line is performance means fun and fun to drive means desire and, just like that red mock one that every that ruined many a boy's young lives with the lust for that car. But we we all love performance, and we love the fact that you've taken your time tonight to spend with us and tell us your story and this wonderful tra uh, travel through life with uh, Shelby American. We can really wish you continued good luck. Mike and I are looking forward to seeing you at uh, shows down the road this year. Hopefully, again, uh, also in Dearborn at Mustang Memories. Mikey's got a spot there, right? Uh, yeah, we're going to be celebrating uh, 60 years of Shelby there. So it's going to be a big, big event this year. So can't wait for everybody to uh, come on out and experience it and meet Gary firsthand. 
yeah, we want them all to come up and, and see what a great guy. Gary, we really appreciate your time. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you do take the time when you see the Shelby truck to come up and say hello to Gary. Uh, he's uh, really, when Shelby's history is written 10 years from now and 20 years from now, Gary, you're going to be in it. Thank you again for joining us on the Mustang Owners Podcast. Well, thank you, sir. It's always an honor. And, you know, the legacy continues because of all the people like yourselves, the listeners, and we've got a wonderful team at Shelby uh, in Las Vegas and uh, throughout the world. So we're very blessed. Absolutely. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little podcast. And for on behalf of Gary Patterson of Shelby American, my great friend, Mike Ray of the Mustang Owners Club of Southeastern Michigan, we hope we catch you again down the road. <laughs>